All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF, and you're listening to it. I'm now sitting in a uh, in a hotel room in Minneapolis. This is uh, coming to you on Monday morning, but uh, it's Sunday morning for me, and I am uh, I am waking up after recording my new Netflix special. Too real. How do you like that? <laughs> the Mark Marin Too Real sh- tour uh, just came to a head last night doing two shows uh, to record a special for Netflix here in Minneapolis. And I-, I know I've been talking about it. Obviously, if you listen to the show, you know we were moving towards this. But I got to say, it uh, it went pretty fucking good. It went, I, it, you know, I, I want to say I'm proud of myself. Uh, I'd like to say uh, also that, uh, you know, I did my job uh, and uh, I enjoyed it. I want to say all those things because they're all true. There was a lot going on, but I'll tell you about it. Today on the show is uh, Mark Mothersbaugh, who many of you know from the band Devo. I was pretty excited to talk to Mark. I, I, again, this happens sometimes. Yeah, sure. Uh, I love Devo. Who doesn't love Devo? Devo is very important, very important in the uh, in the life of of some people, people my age remember the Devo thing when we were younger and and kind of followed it through. But uh, you know, Mark has done an, a lot of stuff and has a lot of stories and is a, a really kind of a genius guy. So I was happy to talk to him. And also, I want to say, if you're not signed up for my mailing list, you should go do that. Go to WTFPod.com and sign up, because if you're not signed up, then you've missed out on a chance to win an advanced copy of our new book, Waiting for the Punch, Words to Live By from the WTF Podcast. There's a sweepstakes only for people who got today's newsletter to win one of 50 advanced copies of the book. So good job to all of you who are already signed up and get my little missives every week. And if you weren't signed up, go do it now, because we'll be running more promotions before the book comes out. Sign up at WTFPod. Dot com. So let's so let's get into it. What what exactly happened? I mean, you know, this has been coming. You know, I've been moving towards this for weeks, and I've been talking to you about you know bringing that hour and a half, hour forty five down to about sixty five to seventy minutes of stand up. And I was sort of slacking on doing that because I get on stage and I just want to keep going. And I don't know. It locked in over the last few days. These Midwest shows for some reason. I, 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 well, I mean, there's, there's good reason. I, I love playing out here in the Midwest. The, the show's leading up to the show. I did at uh, the Orpheum uh, in Milwaukee, which is an amazing theater. And the dressing room is probably the best, um, the best dressing room ever. There's a whole common area. They've got records. They've got a record player. They've got an espresso bar. They've got separate rooms where you can hang out in. The theater's gorgeous. The staff is amazing. And, you know, it was nice. And that was, a, you know, that was the first show. I think that I really tried to lock in to the 70 minutes. And then I, then we went to Madison, me and the, my opener, this uh, this leg of the tour, Amber Preston, the amazing Amber Preston, mid, the Midwest's own Amber Preston. And we did the uh, the Pabst in Madison, which was uh, amazing, even though there's a lot of cement involved at the Pabst. I, I've never been to a theater, and I don't know when it happened, but the actual stage floor is poured concrete. Made me a little nervous, but because uh, you know, I, did, I did do a Pratt fall, that's all. I don't want to spoil, but I, there was a pratfall, classic comedy device in the special. And then by the time I got to Minneapolis, you know, I just, I was locked in and we drove, I rented a car, we drove across, drove four hours and uh, I knew that the crew 
and everybody involved with the special from Netflix to the local crew to the guys they brought in from Chicago and wherever to do their jobs had one day. They couldn't load in the night before. They had to load in that morning and put this whole thing together in one day. And it just always amazes me how, how a good crew can just pull this shit together. You're dealing with a blank canvas, an empty theater. The lighting design was great. The sound sounded great. The set looked great. It was just, it was, a, it was you know, to show up at 11 in the morning and nothing is built and have that moment of like, oh man, what's a, I didn't have that because I knew they would get it together. Lynn Shelton directed and it was just like wrangled all, I mean, it looked fucking great. It was at the Pantages here in Minneapolis. And it was just, it was exciting. And I got to be honest with you, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't freaked out at all. I mean, this is my, I, I don't know, not including half hour, like I did a half hour for HBO back in 95, but you know, the records, my records not sold out, tickets still available, final engagement, this has to be funny, you know, all leading up to like Thinky Pain, which was an album, and uh, my first hour plus special for Netflix, I did more later, another uh, hour plus special for Epics, and then this one, it's a lot of work. Like, sometimes I just have to say that shit to look and, you know, see the evolution over the past however long I've been doing this, more than half my life. So, I don't know, man. It's it's an amazing thing to accomplish, really, to, to be able to do your job and have these things happen because you've spent so much time doing your job. It's a little, you know, difficult now because of the political climate and what you're up against on a day-to-day basis coming through your phone coming through your tv coming through just the fear and or and or anger just knowing that while i was doing my show the president of the united states was doing one of his uh, lie divide and terrorized hate your neighbor road shows uh, across the country the press was uh, doing their show for you know to to establish the fact that facts are important and and we should celebrate that and i was doing you know my little uh, self-involved uh, <laughs> mortality themed special here in minneapolis and uh it was it was really amazing Pri- you know i i think primarily because you know i know my job and you know i pulled the set together and everybody worked to make it happen and it was just stunning and i chose minneapolis because People in Minneapolis have a long tradition of, of live performing. They're, they're decent people. They're respectful audiences. The audience was amazing. My fans are amazing. Uh, they're, they're, they're grownups, even if they're kids. And I don't mean kids. I mean, you know, in their 20s, I attract a certain type of person. And uh, they, they know how to sit and behave and, and enjoy and uh, be polite and, and be attentive. And, it was, and, and Minneapolis is all about that. I've always loved this city. And I'm glad that I did it. Not in the winter, but I'm excited about it. I guess that's what I'm trying to tell you people. I'm excited about it, and it went well, and I was calm, but I did have that thing, and this happens. I think the first show that we taped might be a little weird, so I don't know which show we're going to use because they were both solid, but I I'd kept my emotions in check. I was level-headed. I was underplaying the whole experience so I could just show up and do it. And uh, when they brought me on stage, I was overwhelmed with emotion and fighting back tears. Again, it happened to me at Carnegie Hall. It happens. I don't know if it's big events that I've tried to make not big events in my mind, but I had to struggle in those first minute, in that first minute, not to cry on stage. And I don't know what's that about. It's not a bad thing, but it kind of it kind of upended my my plan for how I was going to open the show and the tone I was going to open the show in. So I you know I did my first. 45 seconds trying not to cry 
but it was good tears. It was good. And, you know, I don't know, man. It just, it just went great, and I'm, and I'm proud of it, and I, I'm excited for you guys to, to see it. So at the end of, this, at the, end of the, uh, the taping, we had the crew out. We did a picture, and Lynn and I had ordered, like, just a, a shitload of donuts and pizza and sandwiches. So, you know, it, it, <laughs> I'm trying to be healthy. I'm trying to be healthy, but, man, when you get done with a big piece of work, and, you know, you get off stage and you walk into that dressing room area and there's just a firing squad of donuts and pizza. You know, you want to you, you want to be part of that. So that's another reason why I'm a little tired. I think I've got a dough hangover. But again, thank you, Minneapolis. Thank you, Netflix. Uh, you know, thank you, the crew of uh, that did it. Some guys were, you know, worked on my uh, last special, uh, the uh set designer and some of the camera guys and Live Nation, thank you, Lynn and Avalon, my management, and Kelly at Avalon, David. What is it? I'm not accepting an award. I'm just, I just want to acknowledge that a lot of people have to come together for me to do my little selfish thing, and uh, they did a great job. So, Mark Mothersbaugh. I was nervous about this because, you know, uh, he's he's done a lot of stuff, and he is sort of... uh, uh, an inspired and interesting person, but you know he's very talkative, and it was a, it was a, it was kind of a, a an amazing conversation. He's got this uh, retrospective exhibition of his visual art and sonic art, and it's now on display at the Gray Art Gallery at NYU. The exhibition is open through July fifth. Also, if you're in the New York City area, Mark will lead a six sided keyboard performance of his compositions this Thursday, May fourth, at the NYU Skirball Center. You can get tickets from the Skirball box office. That's the kind of guy he is. This is me and uh, Mark Mothersbaugh uh, back in the garage. I don't know why I can't just unload it. You, you know, because you get to a point in your life and you're like, uh, what, what, is, what good is this stuff? You, do you ever have that moment where you're like, what would it feel like with nothing? Yeah, it's easy to... Well, you can imagine it when you're on the road, right? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> you ever get in those hotel rooms, you're like, I'm not responsible for any of this, and it's clean. Yeah, uh, and I I took it to the extreme accidentally once, because we used to have our suitcases picked up outside of the room. Yeah. And I managed to put my suitcase outside of the room while I just had my underpants on for uh-huh. going to bed. Yeah. And um, it went. so I got, luckily somebody somewhere had a yellow Devo suit I could wear on the plane and make it to the next. Uh, <laughs> they took, is that real? They took you close? <laughs> well, because we, we, we put our suitcases out and there was some, that was back in the days where we had yeah. disposable cash. So. Oh, right, right. So, but it was nice that someone happened to have a Devo suit. Luckily there was, there was yeah, somebody had <laughs> something. Yeah, Someone was, had fashioned some industrial garment for you to wear. So... This show that it's a retrospective, right? Yes. Of everything, of everything, uh, Mother's Ba. Well, um, yeah, it's uh, art related. Uh, um, it, it, the show has about 300 pieces of art in it. 3,000, I'm sorry. Isn't uh, uh, now, but wouldn't you consider everything you do art related, really? I mean, wasn't that how it well, sort of unf- <laughs> Well, I mean, maybe I, I'm not talking about you know, necessarily jobs, yes. but I mean, from. From the inception of your thing, it was an art uh, compulsion, yeah? Yes, that, that's, that's correct. 
So, like, I would think that even earlier Devo performances, if not, you know, most of them through the beginning, were were somewhat performance art pieces. Well, we we thought we were, tell you the truth, we thought we were an art movement. Sure. We thought we were art Devo. Right. And um, we were art students. Devolution. And the music thing was part of it, but it was almost accidental. uh, Because we we thought we were interested in all the art movements that happened in Europe between World War I and World War II. So we loved agitprop, yeah, and we we loved the stage, you know, stage performances yeah. that included visuals and music and motion and uh, theater yeah. and politics, yeah. And um, we thought that's that's what we thought we were doing. We thought that was what we were where we were going. And then um, you know, you get a record deal, and then you find out there's other people that have ideas too of what you're doing. And sure. And they want to box you in and make some money. Yeah, and that you end up going down these paths that, that were kind of not totally intended. Right. Well, that interests me, though, the the, the sort of uh, inception of everything, because you grew up in what part of Ohio? Akron. We were the, we were the rubber capital of the world. We oh, were good. At the time. and uh, For tires and things? Tires yeah. and all things made out of rubber. Yeah. yeah. And um, Souls. And, uh, yeah, so that was... So we were a wannabe. Like Cleveland was kind of a Detroit wannabe. Sure. We were a Cleveland, a Cleveland wannabe. And it was just you and your brother? Two brothers and two sisters. And, and oh, that's a lot. Both huh? my brothers were in the band originally. So when you're growing up, what uh, you know, what what was your dad doing? Was he in the rubber business? <laughs> well, kind of everybody is in a way, yeah. even if they're not. But he right. was a salesman. And um you know, he was uh he was kind of like, he had kind of like a Dale Carnegie, you know, kind of, he was a, America is a land of opportunity sure. kind of guy. He he had a really great, you know who he reminded me of who? in a way is uh, Timothy Leary. Really? Except yeah. for uh, except, industry. Uh, yeah, except he was, yeah, he was. Right. The, <laughs> Not acid. <laughs> he was a different, yeah. different, but I mean, they were both like super uh, positive guys. Charismatic. You know, were, charismatic and, and the kind of, they were both. The kind of people that would look at look at people at a party in a yeah. room or something, and they'd they'd shake hands with the with the guys that were the most important, or, right? And but they'd also go check out the people that were just wall wallflowers, right. and were just and they'd talk to them and strike up conversations. And so he had a hustle. He was a, a good salesman. Yeah, yeah. So like the shift from because it seems to me like in looking at this stuff and growing up with the you know the first few records in high school, I remember when the first one came out that. I, you seem to define uh, like this. I don't know what you would call it. I have, I have a hard time labeling it, but it seems like what Devo stood for and the aesthetic of Devo kind of changed culture a bit, and, and certainly music. Like there was this sort of an industrial Americana thing that you seem to kind of like. I, I don't know what to call it, but it seems to be referenced in exactly the world that your father came from, and kind of turning it on its head a little bit, just yeah. visually and otherwise. Yeah. Um. You, I mean, this is like old territory, but you probably know I, I went to Kent State, and no, we I were do. parts of the the shooting, and and that kind of really affected us. And well, well, let me let, and, let's get there because I, I I'm you know I'm sort of obsessed with that right now because I've seen you know things about it lately. Yeah. But you know when you went before you got to Kent State, I mean you, it's the early '60s, right? When you're growing up. Yeah. And you know, like the entire culture changed. You, you know the the hippie thing happened. 
and like where when you were in high school what were you gravitating towards you know before the 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 shift well uh i i was an artist already i knew i was you when did you find that out uh i was seven and i got a pair of glasses and and found out i'd been going i'd gone through second grade legally blind and and i in one day i put on a pair of glasses and i saw things i'd never seen before including clouds and telephone wires and house it went on that long yeah and it's not that's not uncommon that's that's actually pretty common that kids can function fairly well yeah and then all of a sudden you find out well they've been doing this without really being able to see anything or at least you know yeah just light and dark and colors and things like that but if you use sound you know you can like guide yourself yeah and and you know if you come up and you grab somebody by the face to look at them they just think you're crazy and need ritalin or something probably (laughs) but it's you know once you've made an identification then you then you know that that pink and blue object is granny walking around Right, right right you can name the shapes (laughs) <laughs> but I but I knew that but that's that's when I decided I was an artist. When you could see clearly. Uh yeah. That that moment. Yeah. What in that moment did you think your art was going to be? Okay, well okay, well here's what happened. The next day I was back at school and my school teacher who had been spanking me cuz corporal punishment was very popular in yeah. in uh I guess that was 1957 or 58 or something, whatever year it was, you know, and uh, spanking me every day and putting me in a corner and sending me to the principal's office. She's looking over, and I had never seen trees before. I would only knew the the part that was attached to the ground that you could run into. And um, she said, you draw trees better than me. And just saying that, it was the first time she'd said something nice to me. Right. So, so it was like, that made me think, oh, I want to be an artist. And that was it. That was it. Now, when you kind of got into high school and stuff, were you were you gravitating towards the, the kind of uh, hippie trip? Yeah, it was like, a, you, know, you know, a few years pass, and then we're sitting around in a kitchen with five kids at a table, and my dad's got a little portable black and white TV set. Like, now you give your kid a a phone or an iPad or something to keep him busy. Yeah. And uh, he'd turn on the TV and we'd all watch Ed Sullivan. And I remember seeing the Beatles come on, Ed Sullivan. And I I go, that's why I've been tortured with keyboard lessons for the last five years. To do that. I knew there was a reason I had to play music because I hated music up until then. Really? And when you saw the Beatles, that delivered the message? That, that was like, that changed it. So, so Did the was, outfits, the matching outfits, was that the moment where you realized matching outfits might be? <laughs> uh, they did this crazy music. They were screaming. Yeah. And then, you know, and then um, the second time they came on, you know, it's like um, uh, John Lennon not only was playing a keyboard, but he used his, I, I didn't know who Jerry Lee Lewis or uh, Little Richard were. So when I saw John, John Lennon go like this, I thought, I thought Mrs. Savory never told me you could use your elbow to play the organ. That's amazing. I thought he was. I thought he was incredible. Right. I, was, I thought, how did he ever think? And not only that, he was using this keyboard that was, the black keys were white and the white keys were black. Oh my God! I'd never seen anything like that. It was a Vox Continental. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that did it. So that that really, I became obsessed with the the British invasion. As a kid, as a kid, and then when did you start, you know, doing visual art, kind of like uh, collaging before. and stuff, that was, and cartooning? That was before that, probably. Oh yeah, just doodling yeah. here and there, putting yeah, things I was together. Always, I was always drawing. I draw every day. You do? Yeah, and um, 
Is it therapeutic or is it a compulsion or which is it? All of it. Yeah. You know, it's like that's what keeps me from, I've never shot anybody or, or I, I can't even think of anybody I want to kill. And there's a lot of horrible people out there. <laughs> but it's okay. So you, you decide to, to go to art school. I'm just trying to picture the, the shift between, because like recently, you know, I read the book uh, Altamont. I read a very thorough book on Altamont. Oh, you know? okay. So you know, so this you know is one of the great kind of uh, symbolic rituals of the death of the '60s. And then I watched a documentary by Adam Curtis that really puts forth the idea that the the Kent State shootings were were the end of uh, an active political left. You know, by you know, in terms of you know middle to upper class kids, you know, yeah. having the courage to push up against authority you definitely i saw that at my school for sure it's it was well, i mean you were there that's why i'm trying to figure out you know when when you're there it's two years in right you're two years into art school yeah. and you're doing what music or poetry? those two years no i didn't i didn't study music at all yeah I, I came in on a partial art scholarship and the first year i i didn't know exactly what what i was going to take and then i found out about printmaking and I fell in love with it. I became obsessed with printmaking and silk so screening or, or the actual screen print. I, I did a screen printing, lithos, uh, yeah. copper plates, all the different styles. But screen printing was my love because I could I could wait until three thirty and all the kids they'd hear the bell go and then they'd run off to their sorority room houses and yeah. their uh, their uh, fraternities and their bars or wherever yeah. they were going to go party. And that meant I had the whole art department to myself between. Yeah you know, five at night and five in the morning the next day. And so instead of, you know, queuing up with a bunch of kids to do a print, yeah. you know, I could I could burn all the screens in one night. I could then print them one color at a time. You know, you know by the time I finished cleaning each screen and re, re um, exposing it to make another color, yeah. the, the paper would be dried so I could take them all back and I'd print the next color and I could finish a a piece of art in one night and so i loved school school i i hated school up until then yeah uh, uh k through 12 were were a nightmare because i was somehow the kid with a kick me oh yeah thing written on my back permanently you didn't have any friends uh i had a couple friends but it, they were all the outcasts we yeah were the, what they would call the uh, the nerd crew yeah we yeah. were we were the and you got did you get like you just bullied constantly yeah, pretty much. Ugh. That's that was pretty much it. It just somehow I fit into that. I I had the right look. <laughs> I combed my hair down like the Beatles instead of back like Elvis Presley, which yeah. kind of was uh, upsetting the, so the status uh, quo. The status quo, uh -huh. you know. And and uh, did you build up a resentment over that? I mean, did it? <laughs> did you find? Were you quietly raging? Well, you know, I I there wasn't any there wasn't any uh, way to. I had no way to to. I tried fighting back. I, I I got held down and had my hair cut off a couple times. And one time, I had a fork and I stabbed a kid in the arm, and that didn't help. Didn't it? Didn't help. The it, fork wasn't enough. The fork did not. It, it, it was it was inspirational for for my enemies. So so it was like I hated yeah public high school. school. I just it just just turned out to be a bad. Ex experience and then sure. college was this whole other thing i disappeared into the crowd my yeah. hair grew as long as i wanted it to i could wear whatever i wanted to wear nobody yeah. cared that i was invisible and i loved that and i could go to the art department 
I could print art. I could make decals because um, graffiti wasn't worked out yet. Mm-hmm. So instead, I would print things on decal paper. Yeah. And then I'd dip it in water and I'd go around the campus, you know, like in the middle of the night and I'd put things up on on uh, mirrors and windows. And just This was just a, a, an inspired act. You, yeah, like, it, was, and, it was kind of my own graffiti. Which, yeah. But there was no real, no one no knew it was you, movement. but no one Nobody knew it was you. Me. Well, like, what kind of stuff were you stickering? Oh, um. So you're way ahead of the curve on that. You might have invented that because well, now I get stickers every day. Like, people send me things with stickers and I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm 53. What am I going yeah, to do with the you sticker? You know, um, actually, that's how I met Jerry Casale. Uh, he was uh, a grad student and I was a sophomore and yeah. he said, he came up to me at school and he said, are you the guy that's putting up pictures of astronauts holding potatoes standing on the moon? And I go, yeah, why? And he says, what's your interest in potatoes? And 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 it, we hit it. That was it. We hit it off, yeah. What was he doing in school at that time? He was um, an art major and he, he was um, getting ready to graduate and it was going to do a, a grad student show and he liked my decals. He said, can you help me make Potato Man decals? So I helped him make Spudman decals, and, and we put them on. He, he blew up photos from his high school yearbook yeah. and put them hanging off of people's faces. Potatoes. And that was his senior project, and of course the teachers thought that was <laughs> well, immature. But Immature, but that seems to be influenced by some of the stuff here, at least the Dada movement and whatever, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like that there was sort of a... a, 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 a a kind of absurd hilariousness to it all that you know something you grapple with you're like is there a point i don't know right but just enough to like make people think right well then keep them uncomfortable sure 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 what are they what is it trying to do to me Mm -hmm. this art so neither one of you were playing music yet we were both playing music Um, yeah um he was in a blues band that was he momentarily uh he was just a little to his sense of humor didn't didn't click with them, so he he was ousted. But he was more into the blues yeah. and played a blues bass, and um, that came in handy later, though. That came in great. Yeah. yeah he, and what was, were you doing? I was in my freshman year. Yeah. Uh, I got a call from a friend of mine who was a drummer who said said Hey, I met these guys. They're Vietnam vets. They were football players before they went to Vietnam. They went over there killed people, found out about drugs, came back, decided they wanted to start a band, but none of them play an instrument. And so they're putting together a band and they bought me a drum set. How would you like to have a B3 organ? I said, that's impossible. No, come meet these guys. And I met them and they were were totally from, they were probably from the world that would have been kicking my butt a few years before that in high school. But they... They had gone through a life-changing experience. Kind of broke and, them. And came back. Yeah. And Akron had changed while they were gone because um, the reason they were over in Vietnam was to help uh, American business, you know, like exploit third world countries and use their, use their resources. Uh, inexpensive. Huh? So, yeah. that, you know, so it's people started, people started, uh, I mean, not people, the all the tire companies kind of while while Vietnam War was going on, they started moving out of Akron, going to Brazil, going to Asia, and uh, hiring people for like 
twelve dollars a month instead of twelve dollars an hour. And that, and, and these guys were people were getting hip to that. The counterculture and and people well, who were yeah, because they came back, they thought they were going to do what their fathers and their get the, grandfathers get the job had done. Back. They thought they were going to work in the factory yeah. and and you know just. They thought they had a steady job, and, and that wasn't the case. And, and Akron still isn't totally recuperated from it. I mean, they are, there are a lot of artists that came out of Akron, probably because of that. But um, uh, that whole area, there's, there's something about, you know, there's something about what's happened in this country that, that is valid, that, that, um, that they're angry about. No, definitely. And, it, you know, it's been happening for years is sort of like what I'm getting from what you're saying. And Ohio got hit very hard. And, you know, the you know, the reaction to that over the last five, four or five decades has been this you know, horrible you know, opioid epidemic, which really started in Ohio in southern Ohio. Yeah, I just found out. Do you need out. anything, by the way? Yeah. What do you got? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you're hanging out with these vets who are kind of, you know, uh, pushing the edge. Right. So so I was. With them, they said, if I wrote music, they would pay my room and board. So I already had my school thing worked out. So I would go to school every day and do art, and then I'd come home and I'd write music. For these and dudes. I did that for a number of years before the shootings happened at Kent State. And then that what? Brought, brought this guy, Jerry Casale, who, who, along with a couple of his friends, they were already kind of... They were definitely conceptual artists, and he was definitely looking for something to do. And it, what we just kind of gelled together. We talked about uh, what we had seen happen at school. Well, what did happen? How did it? Did well, you they, remember the whole build to it? I mean, were you at the protest? What, I don't. I don't have a yeah a, an um, eyewitness account. Uh, I I remember after the shooting. I remember FBI agents leaving my parents' house. And going in, my mom was in shock because they had pictures of my younger brother, who was, uh, I think, a junior in yeah. high school at the time, had hitchhiked to Kent and was, uh, he they he was lighting an American flag, or he had a, a flaming American flag, and he was trying to stop firemen from putting out the fire at the ROTC building. Yeah. And they're like, it's our Bobby. Oh, yeah. He's only <laughs> 15. How did this happen? You know, it was like that kind of kind of stuff. And And- did it happen during a huge protest on campus? Is that what, yeah. what went down? Yeah, Kent, Kent State, when I got there, it was an amazing school. And uh, the art department was incredibly vi- uh, vibrant. And they were bringing in artists from all over the world to to um, do residencies. And I saw films like um, uh, Satyricon and things like sure. that that... that you didn't see if you went to the drive-in theater in Akron. Was it, right, and was there like art films like Kenneth Anger and stuff like that or, or, oh, yeah. or all yeah. that kind of stuff coming and, through? And, and we all got that. Uh, and, you know, Richard Myers, the filmmaker, taught there. And, oh, okay, yeah. And uh, in those years, Devo even ended up um, in footage that he says that i saw him last year and he said i know i got it in the basement somewhere but i don't know what happened to that movie (laughs) so it was like uh it was really on the sort of uh kind of cutting edge of of what was happening in experimental art and experimental film and music well yeah uh kent was it was beautiful and then after the shootings uh, they closed the school for about four or five months, and when we came back in September, in the fall, to start school again, it was a totally different atmosphere. It was uh, 
like everybody had gone to sleep. Oh, did, did you know any of the people that were killed? No. They, as a matter of fact, some of them were just people that were not even part of the protests that just happened to be walking by. And uh, Do you remember that day? Were you there? I remember uh, armored vehicles going down the street and them going, leave the city, leave the city now. And uh, it was shocking. They, you know, we they just closed down the whole school. And then the guards started shooting. They they shot first. <laughs> That's that that was the. That was they shot excuse. first, and then then they closed things down. Yeah. Oh my God! I, I mean, like I can't. The, the reason why. You know, when when, you know, the politics changes as drastically as it has now that, you know, that you forget that that was and is part of our history. And and most of us have not seen that. And, you know, you saw it. You know, that was here in America. That was armored vehicles. And that was, you know, killing kids in 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 as a reaction to political activism. Right. There was nothing happening that that uh, that was threatening any of them. It was just. The, the governor just didn't like there being any lack of control for him. And he, he, he wanted to just show a lesson. How did it affect you personally, you know, outside of the school closing? I mean, you know, you were there in this, you know, a, a free zone of creativity. And then this shit just kind of the hammer comes down in the most extreme way. Well, as artists, yeah. uh, I was collecting things like... Um, it, it, right about at the same time, I had uh, got invited to a free dinner yeah. at a church. Uh-huh. And um, a free dinner sounded great. And <laughs> I got in a car with these people, and we drove up to Cleveland, and we went to a steel workers uh, union hall. Uh-huh. And there was like a, it was a big cafeteria, and they everybody got a free meal. And I thought, oh, great, this is great. And then afterwards, then somebody stood up and they started talking about the end times and i went oh, okay now we're going to pay for dinner and this guy started talking about um how the signs were were becoming more and more prevalent and that we were getting closer to the end of planet earth and bing and and the hair on my arms just stood up i was like wow and he was speaking in tongues. And as soon as he stopped, he, somebody stood up in the audience and said, Jesus said that he will be coming back soon. And when he comes back, there will be signs. And then this guy went yeah. on and, and described it. And then he sat down. And when he sat down, somebody else got up and they had a whole other language. It was like, they had their own really intense, you know, like um, nonsensical, yeah, non, yeah. non-literal uh, guttural noises and somebody stood up and deciphered that and that happened about half a dozen times and s- s- sounds in the interpretation of sound yeah and then then they broke us up into little groups because they were trying to because it was a recruitment thing and and so they went around a circle and they got to me and i was i didn't know what to do so i just kind of emulated uh fred flintstone and went yabba dabba doo yabba dabba doo a couple times but but because i was just not prepared for where i where i was but i left there very impressed and i remember walking because i lived in downtown akron at the time i remember walking and i heard this homeless guy you know like like ranting and it made me stop and i went over to listen to him because i was thinking where is this coming from there's something 
where people are are relinquishing their intellect yeah and they're embracing something nonsensical that that they're looking for something spiritual and i was curious i was thinking well wait a minute we only use there's only 10% of our brain that works in this yeah. language maybe this this other language maybe that has something to do with the other 90% and yeah. and yeah. i i started paying attention to to ranters and to and to speaking in tongues became interesting to me it became something that I thought might be a clue as to who we were and why we were here. Yeah, and and what what'd you ultimately figure out? Um, okay, here's what I think. Yeah, I think the ten percent of our brains that yeah. we know about. Yeah, it's a nanny. Yeah, for the other ninety percent. Sure. And it's like it has to do all the stuff like get dressed and make sure you process. Yeah. 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 Fl- yeah. Flush. But the other ninety percent is the part that's like. It's like the dolphin part of the human or the alien. Uh, it's the it's the part that might still have telecommunication powers or might have fourth dimension powers or might. So, of course, it it's really selfish if that's the case, though, because it's not sharing much of that information with the other ten percent that's that's in charge of things. And and or or the other way, the the nanny is not allowing it. Something, yeah. There's yeah, yeah. something. There's something dysfunctional. An adversarial relationship between yeah. and then, the and dolphin then, and the nanny. And what you end up with is just this kind of um, unnatural, dysfunctioning species that is like dangerous to the rest of the planet. Yeah, and driven by by habit and fear. Yes, I, I agree. Habit so, and fear. Habit and fear. Yeah, I don't don't break the habit, <laughs> or the fear is unleashed. And don't let that guy be different. Exactly. So, <laughs> so it's so. Anyhow, so even with Devo, yeah. You know, and we decided we wanted we wanted to be music reporters, and and we did that with our art. And and um, well, when did the vision happen? Like you know, you you have this moment. You know, the Kent State shootings happen. You find yourself in a strange church. You're you're now that kind of you know blew your mind in terms of. You know, what do we really know about who we are and, and how our brain works? So when does the mission of Devo start to kind of manifest itself? I think I think the first uh, the first bits of it were happening in 1970. I think it was post uh, post shootings and and it was us all talking to each other. And it was you, Jerry, Bob, my brother. Uh, there was a Bob Lewis. Yeah. Who was kind of um, he was interesting because he, he was like. um uh, like he was, he he knew he was like Mister Encyclopedia. I liked him because he yeah he he New had stuff. a lot of information yeah. about everything. And, yeah, and uh, but but then my brother was kind of him and Jerry had this kind of more energy where they like my brother Bob was kind of like a he was a guitar player, serious. Yeah, that's yeah. what he was about. Yeah, you know, and this other stuff, whatever you think. You yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah. He I, just wanted to play guitar. I lit a flag on fire and got in trouble for it. I don't care, you know. And then, um, and then uh, my brother Jim, yeah, who was our first drummer, um, we started talking about drum sounds and and what we wanted the band to sound like. And I, I really wanted to. I, I didn't want to be a rock and roll band. I thought we were like this art movement, anyhow. And the and the band part of it was just part of it, right? And I, I, I said, you know, we need. 
modern sounds. I was thinking of like the futurists in Italy that were like adding foghorns and uh, and you know electric motors to yeah. orchestras. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, we need mortar blasts and we need V two rocket sounds and we need ray guns and we need sounds that come from our culture. You know, the to add to our music. And my brother Jim invented maybe the first electronic drum set. Uh, he he definitely, he, he worked at a Midas muffler yeah. shop at the time, and he took mu- tailpipes and built a stand and then took practice drum pads and added acoustic guitar pickups to them and ran them through fuzz tones and wah-wah pedals and echoplexes and uh, ring modulators, and he'd play drums, and it's it was the most god-awful, awesome incredible sound you ever heard uh and he was he but he became so obsessed with the electronic thing he became so into electronics that um he then started circuit bending and there was no such word as that at the time but he started uh, manipulating all of our synths and our amps and everything um everything electronic he would play with it and make it do things it wasn't supposed to do and uh, he he lost interest in drumming and, and just became interested in that, and um, that was the start. And we were like, at the very beginning, was probably the most of an art band that Devo ever sounded. I think. And some of those recordings are available, aren't they? Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I think just about everything is, is out you know? there in the world. If it it's was out there, yeah. if it was recorded somewhere, it's probably out there. Yeah. And and so it was not it had nothing to do with with songs or hooks or anything. It was just you know ex- expression and integration of sounds. Although you know we were we were always interested in in pop culture, you know. Sure. So we loved the idea of, of instead of being another Pirubu, right? Or another. Were they um, around then already? They were. Yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, we were we swapped clubs. They'd come down and play at the club that we that we played in. In a hot, in Akron, and then yeah. we go up to Cleveland and play at uh, the place that they used to play. Yeah, but they were more uh, song driven. At the time, they they became very art. Yeah, farther out art. They they but they were like kindred spirit for sure. He's an interesting guy. What's that singer's name? Uh, he was Crocus Behemoth at the time, and oh. now he's then he went back to his real name, David Thomas. Yeah, he's a he's sort of an interesting guy. You guys are friends. Well, we. I, I wouldn't say that. We were like um, artists working from the same part of the world at the same time. I mean, I I got him upset one night because we played in Cleveland and uh, our show was very, uh, for as weird as it was, it was also very formalized. And we had, we'd wear like these yellow plastic hazardous waist suits early yeah. on and then we would rip them off about two-thirds of the way through the show and we'd have another outfit on underneath and we did the same we we really built the shows really tight Uh, but the last song would be this character boogie boy that was kind of my alter ego and he boogie boy could speak in tongues boogie boy would do things that we we never knew exactly what was going to happen the other 90 percent and so (laughs) just one night boogie boy um he, he stuffed his, uh, I, I bought one of those like $3 plastic sauna suits or something that yeah. were on TV. You know, one of those, it was yeah. like a, Ron Popeil probably sold them. <laughs> sure. and, and I yeah. filled it full of newspaper. Yeah. So I was big, yeah. like 
like Crocus Behemoth was at the time. Uh-huh. And um, I came out and and sang his lyrics to one of his songs over the middle of uh, Jocahoma. Because uh-huh. Jocahoma was a song where it was like we would use that to make people go crazy. Because uh-huh. we'd do the, are we not men, we are devote chant for a long, long enough so that finally there'd be some Vietnam vet uh-huh. Who just came there because he wanted to hear Fog Hat and you know his favorite songs, right? And after about five minutes of that, the guy would go, "Okay, that's it," and he'd slam his beer down and he'd come up on stage and attack us. And and we loved being a lightning rod for hostility in those days. Well, it was something it seems like you grew up with. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like um, and you turned it on itself. It's like, come on! It was something that we needed yeah. to uh, to expel. I think so. The outfits and stuff, like y- y- this, was you guys were y- y- you enjoyed the, the provoking. Well, we we didn't want to be a rock band. Even then, we knew we didn't. My brother Bob thought that was he didn't care. He Why? Because it was boring, or was well, it we like, just thought it was. We thought rock and roll was over. It was like already the early seventies. Yeah, and. It had been going on for like 20 years now. It wasn't it time to end this stupid stuff? And, uh, and and rock and roll, but but partly in defense of that was because what had happened in rock and roll is like after 1970 and after shootings around the country yeah. and, all, and everybody went to sleep politically, music came back as corporate rock. It was like bands like Boston Sticks, you know. Um, Mid-70s? Yeah, yeah. mid-70s. It was like... Um, I'm white, I'm stupid, I'm a misogynist, and I'm proud of it, was basically the politics of that stuff. And then there was disco, which was kind of a beautiful woman with no brain. Right. And, uh, you know, so... You didn't want to do either of those. And so we, we knew we, that not wasn't anything what we were doing. We were an art movement. We were like, we were art devo. And what, what, and, and what was the intention of the, the movement in your mind? Like Art uh, Devo. I, th- I thought we were like, uh, uh, Jerry and I, we thought we were um, musical reporters. We thought we were uh, art, art visual reporters. We were making these little films and we were, we were like, um, we, we fantasized a, a, a Devo Vision re-education channel on TV where, where kids, instead of doing the stupid dances, they did it at Studio 54 or yeah. any of the clubs. They'd come and they'd do like these kind of like paramilitary uh, 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 aerobic classes. You know, we imagined, you know, like everybody having this whole new set of, um, of lang- a whole new language of how to move in at a concert, for instance, and, and how, to, how to behave at a but concert. But it was unified. Yeah, like, yeah, the idea was that you want, but that was the joke. It wasn't we some were, sort of fascist movement. It was no, no. <laughs> we were, we were, we were saving the planet from stupidity. Yeah, at the yeah. Time. <laughs> and uh, you how'd know, that go? Well, it didn't. I don't know. If you if you look at what's going on right now, you'd say we we uh, we we were not paranoid at all. That's true. And did you find, though, like uh, that at, at the time where you said you went back to school after a five-month hiatus and also what you're saying now about the evolution of corporate rock, did you find that that sort of somnambulistic or that sleepwalking, did you find that most creative people you know, chose to, to withdraw or go inside and create as opposed to continue to sort of like actively fight, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like um, the people that were kindred spirits yeah before yes yeah. they were 
they were in shock too yeah. of what had happened and nobody thought of that we we didn't think protesting the war in vietnam was worth was something that we would get killed for yeah you know we thought we were we thought this is the the right thing we're, to do within it's our the rights. moral thing to yeah, do right. it's the it's the intelligent thing to do and and i couldn't think of one single vietnamese person i wanted to kill so it, it it was especially absurd to me. So then, after that happened, and then I guess you know, you know, capitalism and the market forces sort of won out and appropriated music. So you guys were working outside, off the grid, to to do something new and and something jarring. And how did that evolve into, you know, getting a record deal? Yeah, you know, it's like we were thinking, who is it out there that we respect? And you know, I. I loved people that spoke in tongues, like uh, Wild Man Fisher and yeah. Beefheart. Uh, they, I <laughs> yeah. loved them, and I met them, and it was unsatisfying in a way to meet them. Why? It uh, always is, kind of. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's like um, uh, Captain Beefheart. I I think I saved him from going to jail one day because um, I was over at his rehe- a rehearsal at his place. Here? Out here, yeah. Yeah. And, and he wanted some ice cream before he went home, and so yeah. we took him to an ice cream place. And I was, we were, I was talking with the drummer, and we heard this woman screaming. And we look over, and she's screaming because Captain Beefheart, who's in the middle of a really hot summer, has has a long black coat on and a black hat. He's like hoovering over this little kid, helping this little child draw something. Yeah, and this woman is freaking out because. It, it did look weird. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and so we went over and we pulled him off and we took him out of the, uh, and he said something like, my baby won't let me have a baby. Yeah. And uh, we're like, wow, I can see why. Yeah. It's a good it's hook like, though. That's a good song. My baby won't let me have a baby. Yeah. It was, he, was, <laughs> he, was, he, he was impressive to watch with his band because although he couldn't write music out in any thing that was even vaguely, and he could ver- barely communicate in a, in a, uh, a way that people would play they all his ba- his band members all loved him and they treated him like the like this amazing you know infant yeah. Yeah. you know um messiah and so they all they'd fight over after he left they'd fight over what did he mean when he said this oh, is really? here's what your guitar should sound like and he'd make these movements and then they'd argue over who what it should be and they would like try to work it out and they'd show him the next day and he'd go no yeah yeah you know stuff like that i i became sort of fascinated with him and i i hear he was like pretty you know a kind of a taskmaster in, in terms yeah. of getting that sound and he, but he would get it that yeah. was the impressive thing that he would use these very you know like um and like watching him actually served me well when i kind of went into the belly of the beast and started scoring films because it made me Listen to people that had absolutely no ability to talk about what they wanted musically other than to say, I just, it's just, you know, it's um, Robert De Niro had diarrhea and it doesn't look like a love scene at all. And, and the woman could s- smell and it, and, and it just, you got to make them, you got to help it out. You got to help. And help they would, it out. And they'd just have things, that, you know, or, or the sky was, was overcast and they needed it to be a sunshine sky. So then they say, you got to help me make it a sunshiny day here right now. And, and uh, instead of like, being confused i just kind of learned how to like enjoy that part of my that it's kind of in some ways i have to say i secretly love people that are totally inarticulate yeah. about anything musical 
but they know what they want in some way, and, uh-huh. and that's really great. I and love they, that. They know a feeling. Or they know a, yeah, something. They know it. something, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. They, they look for these words, and then I get to try and interpret what they mean. You're interpreting the speaking in tongues. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you guys are you know plugging away in your uh, hazmat suits. Yeah. Making noises. So in, in in Ohio primarily, when do you when do you tour? When do you sort of become on the radar? Uh, well, you know, um, somewhere around 1974. Yeah, I'm a little bit dyslexic with numbers. I yeah, think I'm a, correct. Okay, uh, th- I actually, have this nice timeline in your book. Actually, being <laughs> dyslexic is helpful for me because it is? Uh, it's it's like if somebody says, "Can you write something like?" Uh, like Mozart's uh, wedding march or something, and then you go like this. But then you, if I, I can have it in my head and I can write it incorrectly, yeah. and then it becomes an original piece. And so it's <laughs> so, so it works. Like, the uh, dyslexia is the so benefit. I, I I use I have just enough of it that it's useful it, everywhere except for I have to write down phone numbers because I can't remember seven numbers in a row. Yeah, and well, yeah, and then now like there, all the area codes are different. Yeah. Um, it says 19, it looks like 75, 76, 77, let's see, no, 76, you produced the first single, Jocko Homo, and with Mongoloid on your label, Bougie yeah. Boy. Yeah. So that, is that what gets out there? Yeah, yeah, right before that we had made our, a film with yeah. um, Jocko Homo and Secret Agent Man, and, and uh, we made the film because uh, Chuck Statler, who was in that art class with Jerry and I, um, he had gone to Minneapolis because he wanted to be a commercial director. Yeah. And he came back and he had this popular science magazine back and shows it on the cover. It says, there's this young white couple holding a silver disc that looks the same size as a vinyl LP. And, yeah. and, and it says, laser discs. Everybody will have them by Christmas. That's yeah. basically what it said in the article. And we're like, laser discs. And they got... They can hold twice as much material, plus you get pictures with it, and that's us. We're audiovisual people for sure. We're we're like yeah. We make we make films and we make uh, paintings and we we design shows and we and music's part of it too. And so we thought that's it. We're making product for laser discs. That's what we thought. <laughs> that's why it, it sounded good too. With had the word laser in it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it, it didn't sound like rock and roll. We loved yeah. the idea that it wasn't saying the word rock and roll. Like satisfaction, like your version of it is great, and there's been other versions, Otis writing and so on. But uh, but when when you say that you had a, a sort of um, contentious relationship with corporate rock, what was the decision to do satisfaction? Well, I mean, we love the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Good, come on, <laughs> they were so freaking awesome, weren't you know? they? And, and still are. Kind and of. it was 1974. It was yeah. 10 years later right. since since the original. We thought, well, it needs to be reinterpreted for the 70s. Right. So, and, but it, but it happened kind of. It was very. It was a very organic thing. Bob, we were in this. Uh, we were in a car wash in Ohio that we were allowed to rehearse in that had no heat. Yeah. And so we're standing there next to like tubs of soap and things like that yeah. and paper towels and and um we're wearing coats and you can see your steam come out and bob casali starts playing that kind of little riff and, yeah and then alan's playing something on the drums that's that's kind of very it's like an it's like it's backwards or something right. and then jerry's playing playing a bass and my brother's playing guitar and and singing satisfaction on it just made us all laugh right and uh 
and that's how and it we came loved in. it because yeah. it seemed like a way to we when people because people would say well, what are you guys what are you doing we thought if we it, it, satisfaction could be like a doorway in so you could see what Devo was about right. with that song that yeah. was that was better than like any kind of a, a, a a verbal description of what we what we were trying to do and better than the anthem you know which was the jocko homo to a degree well they they the anthem was really good for agitating people right and, and uh <laughs> but this getting is... them to pay attention but if right. somebody wanted to if somebody was curious what our kind what kind of music we were playing you know and we played them satisfaction, satisfaction right and, and then maybe uncontrollable urge because that Uncontrollable Urge, uh, we we put that as the first song on our first album because uh, we I took the the opening chords from I Want to Hold Your Hand yeah. and put them on Uncontrollable Urge. Right. Da, 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 and then, uh, the, yeah, 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 yeah. That was all, you know, out of She Loves You, you know, but but our oh, reprocessing. Right, right, right. Oh, and, my God. And so, and, and it's funny because it, it, it didn't, it wasn't unnoticed by... Um, by John Lennon, who who came to a Devo show, uh, yeah, one night in in New York, we were playing Max's Kansas City, and and you set up your equipment in the back wall, right? And to take your equipment out, uh, we had to wait for the the whole place to empty out at the end of the night. So, we had our Econoline van parked out front, and I'm sitting there in the passenger seat, and he's walking out with Ian Hunter, and they're both really drunk. Uh huh. And John Lennon looks over at me, and he's like, he goes, Oh, I know that's that guy that was and he came up and he stuck his face right here and he went yeah 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 right in my face and i was like okay we can have a we can drive off the road and die tonight i don't care oh that was great it was pretty awesome he felt it he knew it he knew it he <laughs> he, he sang yeah 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 more than i had at that point that's fucking spectacular now i probably sung it more than he ever did right but, but he sang it more than i had at that point and as you evolve as a band and you become popular and you're selling a few records, did, was there ever that and you changed the 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 tone and the total outfits on occasion, but they all seemed to match. Was that? <laughs> yeah, they were always they were, they were always not glamorous. Yeah. Uh, well, but, but I wonder if that matching outfit thing that was something you pulled from the '50s bands. I, I think no, or maybe yeah, yeah. Except ours were more like maintenance men outfits. No, of course, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Um, but uh, the idea of it, yeah. There was more than once where where somebody would hand us. We'd be waiting out front for a, a cab to take us to a or a car to take us to a a concert we were playing, and somebody would get out of their car and hand us the keys because uh, they'd look at our outfits and <laughs> just think, oh, here. yeah. But it w that was mostly theater, really. the The intent was that not everything had a purpose. Well, um, it was it was. Uh, I think it gave us an organized look. Yeah, I, and I think that's really what we wanted out of it. We wanted to look like cogs in a machine, rather than we were kind of already at that point. We were over at being things like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, right? Or uh, you know where one person comes out and they become the star of the band. We were kind of less interested in that and we're, we thought of ourselves as all like like parts of a machine. A movement still. Yeah. Yeah. We thought of like the that scene in Metropolis where where there's, you know, like <laughs> yeah. uh, guys controlling this gigantic machine, but they they're just part of the machine too, really. Right. 
Now, I don't know if a lot of people know that, that Whip It was intended to be a political song, correct? Yeah, you know, uh, we overthought everything, I'm sure. But yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it was, at the time, we'd been touring, and people would say, well, we love America, but your foreign policy is ridiculous. And Jimmy Carter was the president at the time, and yeah. uh, it was kind of our, like, um, it was kind of our, like, come on, Jimmy. Yeah. It did, it, did it read to the public as that? What, what no, of course. It was like what happened is like some DJ in, in uh, Florida actually started playing it in clubs. And, and then when we'd show up at radio stations, because that was what they made you do sure, John when you were in a band, yeah. you're going to, you know, you're going to Toledo. But before you go to the, to the venue to do sound check, you're going to stop at, you know, KABD. Sure. Yeah, uh, radio and and you'd, plug it. We'd be in. They go. Oh, I got Devo in the other room, and then he'd go. You know, I whipped it just this morning. Ah, <laughs> yeah, right. You'd be like, okay. So then it became a jerk off joke. Okay, among things. Among yeah, among other things. things. Yeah. What was the uh, when you were writing that? What was kind of the you know were you still drawing from actively drawing from uh, you know other inspiration, art, and whatnot? Yeah, always. I mean, that even it sound. Uh, it was even kind of a bit of a deconstruction of um, there's there's like a little bit of a baseline from uh, uh, Pretty Woman even in it, you know, uh-huh. and there's like and so we would always like uh, like just sometimes we started off our songs because of an idea for a film yeah. by that point because we were we were kind of like at the forefront of that stuff and yeah when we made our own films we yeah. like uh what became the the method of doing it after music you know, rapidly video? yeah music videos instead of art films yeah uh it was this thing where you the record companies would hire somebody to make make sure. a film for you yeah and, but we used to make our own because that's what we did yeah and um you know so so a lot of our songs started off as a an idea for a film before they became a song. Oh, really? And what about lyrically? Were you drawing from poets, or you know, did you have people that influence you? All different things. Yeah. You know, it's like I remember um, going to Japan when when we, for our Freedom of Choice show. Yeah. And I, I was friends with these this band called the Plastics. Yeah. And uh, my friend Hajime came up to me and said, "Hey, Mark, you know what the name of your band is?" And Japan? I go, no. He goes, there's no direct translation of freedom of choice, so your album title is called The Psychology of Desire. And we're like, that's awesome. What a great, <laughs> well, that's so cool. We loved it. We were laughing that, yeah. of course, Japan has no freedom of choice. You know? <laughs> right. And, and, and I remember before that tour was over, we were at a bar, and these two, it was just Devo, because it was late at night, and my brother Bob took the challenge to eat fugu, which is like a poisonous... Um, a poisonous fish, that, yeah. and they made him sushi out of it, and he, he he got sick, and he's just sitting there with his head on the on the counter while we're still eating sushi. Yeah. Of course, we didn't take him to a doctor or anything. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Um, and then there were these two businessmen that were watching us the whole time, that were the only other patrons at this sushi bar, and they both had business suits on, and one of them comes up, and he, he's kind of drunk, and he goes, my symbol big and we just we're like what and then his friend comes up and goes no his symbol small and then he goes no my symbol big and he goes no his symbol very small or something like that yeah, and they yeah. got in a fight and, but we're looking and the one guy has this tie bar on yeah 
and it's a hand like a businessman's suit sleeve with you could see the little you know yeah, like a yeah, shirt and, yeah and it was a hand holding a pen and it went across the tie and on it it said new traditionalists and we're like new traditionalists and we started talking about that we're saying what does that mean and we thought wow that's a that's kind of a cool term isn't yeah. it because it's like traditions that are new that's kind of what we're we want to do we want to start new traditions you know yeah. like we want people to think first you know and we want to we want to do positive mutations instead yeah. of you know just letting mutations being you know pushed on you and we love that idea and so i remember we went back and we we went to write for that album we're thinking so we named a song psychology a desire because we're like what are they going to translate it to freedom of choice <laughs> you know we were laughing and i remember getting back to um and we named our album new traditionalists yeah so we get back to japan and i i told hajimi about the you know the, the song title and he goes oh yeah and he's i said what'd you think of the um I, I said what'd you think of the album title we got that from a, and i told him the story about the two guys and he goes album title not so good mark i go why <laughs> he goes uh, album title the new Devo album in Japan is called Yuppie. <laughs> new traditionalist translated to Yuppie in J- Japanese, and that, we didn't. <laughs> so it's, we're playing a tour for an album called Yuppie, but everybody <laughs> showed up. You know, they all showed up. But it was it was kind of an interesting journey for that uh, mm-hmm. through words. Yuppie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so what um, did was there a point where you guys kind of you know tapped out or felt like y- you know you were selling out or you know any of that? Well, you know it was, you know it was. Um, I I think Whippet was like the the double edged sword for us yeah. because the first couple albums it was back you know back in the seventies record companies made so much money. And they sold so many records. Yeah. And they could put out anything they wanted and they could sell it. Yeah. So they would sign bands like Devo and Warner Brothers would go, oh, you know, we have Captain Beefheart and sure. we have Wildman Fisher and <laughs> we have Devo, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but of course we do Madonna and Prince, but we yeah, have yeah. these guys, you know. Yeah. And, um, and we were just looked at as like, you know, they, they just thought of us as like, well, Lump we're not in. losing any money right. on them. We, they, they're always in the black. They're careful with their, they budget their, their money and and they don't charge us very much and they do all their own graphics and their own artwork. We don't have to do anything for them. So, um, so they were kind of like that. About, they didn't care. They didn't pay attention. You had and more then, freedom than most And then people. once, once Whippet came out and, and there was a hit record, that changed everything because then it was like they were peering around corners. They'd show up unannounced at rehearsals and go hey how are you guys doing man you got another whippet coming out for right us? you and locked into something they're like, they're, hey. like, they're like do whatever you guys want to do just do, and we're thinking well we didn't do whippet on purpose it just was yeah. what we were writing right. at the time you know and so it put this other pressure and this other energy on it that that i think it kind of became the beginning of us going this isn't what we thought it was going to be right and we were feeling like we're not an art movement we're like <laughs> we're now we are just a <laughs> a hit machine we're just like um <laughs> this band that that stumbled onto a hit record we we did a few more records after that but you know it's like um you know we got to this point where we had done like six or seven albums with warner brothers and and it was the same thing you write 12 songs you rehearse them you go record them 
you uh, make a film for one or two of them. Yeah. You uh, um, put together a live show. You you design the staging and the costumes and everything. Then you go tour. And then a year later, you write 12 more songs. And so somewhere after we left Warner Brothers um, and signed with uh, Enigma Records, Enigma went bankrupt. And, and uh, in this place where we were in like a suspended animation, a friend of mine asked me if um, I would score his TV show for him. And I said, I could try that. I'd like to try that. And so he... I, I got to write this song that yeah. with with him and who was that? Uh, Paul Rubens. Uh, I, I wrote Pee Wee's Playhouse theme song, mm-hmm. and we had a lot of fun doing it. And we got Cindy Lauper to sing it. And there was a crazy fight between her manager and Paul's manager at the recording session, and and it was it was all kind of weird and funny. And then and then they sent me a tape on a Monday. I wrote twelve songs worth of music on Tuesday. Wednesday I recorded it. Thursday I had to put it physically in the mail and send it to New York, and then Friday they dropped it into the show, and Saturday we watched it on TV, and then Monday I got another tape and it started all over again. And it was like instead of a year between getting to be creative and write 12 songs, right. like, I got to do it every week, and I said, sign me up for this. I, yeah. I was totally fascinated with it, and I could do things like I could make musical jokes about friends of mine, like David Byrne or something. Yeah. I'd put something in from Psycho Chicken in, a, in something, yeah. or I'd... I'd do something that had a little bit of a Devo thing, sort of, you could kind of hear it if you knew what you were listening for. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then I found out about subliminal messages. Uh-huh. Just then? I mean, that was well, the first time you got hip to it? I found out that you could put them in TV commercials and nobody would know it. Just nobody would stop you, I mean. Funny ones, like for you, not for the product. Well, um... I put in subliminal messages like uh, I think my first commercial I had I did was a Hawaiian punch. Uh-huh. There's a there was a drum solo near the end that went do doom do doom ba doom ba doom and I went uh, underneath the drum solo I just went sugar is bad for you, <laughs> and um, I, I remember going to Daly and Associates um, afterwards and Bob Casale was my engineer. Yeah, we ended up having a long career together doing films and TV shows together after that, but. We're sitting in this meeting with with the um, ad agency and the director of the film and everything, and um, I, I'm a really I'm not that great a liar. So, yeah. So it's like we get it gets closer and closer to the point where it's going to play it, and I just turn bright red, and Bob Gasali looks over at me like we're going to get in trouble. We're not going to get paid, and it goes sugar is bad for you. And there's this guy from Daily and Associates tapping his pen, and they're all just kind of bobbing their heads. And when it's over, he, he goes, yeah, Hawaiian Punch hits you in all the right places. And they all high-five each other. And we're just looking, Bob and I are just looking at each other, and he's going, how did you get away with that? And so then we started doing it on purpose. You could hear it audibly? Well, it's like, if you're not listening for it, you're not, right. you may not, it get may it. not, right, okay. you may not go, wait a second. Yeah. And it's on TV, so right. it's like it's not like you're going to go play it 20 times in a row. But you could hear it on TV. You're like, there it yeah. is. <laughs> well, we heard it because sure. we knew it was there. Yeah, yeah. And um, we did about, I don't know, 30, 50 of those maybe. Commercials. With, with things like, we were doing commercials where like maybe there'd be a, you know, like, choose your mutations carefully, you know, or <laughs> be like your ancestors or be different or question authority. We, you know, we'd figure something, and it would it would have to do with how, you know, how neutral we were to whatever it was they were selling. Right. We did about, I'd say, probably fifty 
commercials like that. Subversive. Before, before somebody called me up who was a picture editor yeah. on a spot and he goes, I know what you're doing. I know what you did. He says, take that out. <laughs> and he never told the client. And so we just, so Bob Gasali did what he was supposed to do. And he took the, yeah. he took whatever the, the message was on that commercial out. And, and, uh, we still, you know, we still did it now and then on different things. You know, we'd, we'd find things to put it in. And you could live with yourself. We were having fun. Yeah. That was, that was making it like, um, yeah, like that yeah. made it kind of subversive. Right. It's like the, you're still honoring the, the, uh, the agenda of Devo. Well, because, yeah, because our, our, our thing was always, you know, like uh, yeah. making it into the belly of the beast. And, sure. Uh, and, then, yeah. and seeing how strong the concept was, you know, if it could survive or not. I love it. So, so Pee Wee was really your first four way, four, four, four way, four. Wow. It was my first four, four way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> into, into, <laughs> into, uh, uh, scoring. Yes. And you just, well, got, sort of, although I, I was doing your scoring, own stuff, right? Like for our, our live shows, there yeah, would yeah. Be, there would be instrumental pieces that would segue from one, you know, but one set up to another and, but i like that the idea that you didn't have to do 12 songs that get strung out on the road get you know exhausted probably yeah. disillusioned before you could start creating again and for somebody like you you know who's compulsively drawing and taking pictures that you know feeding that thing was at least engaging your creativity on a daily basis yes it was it was definitely and it was fresh at the time, and I didn't know where the limits were, so I loved it. You know, it was like you're learning out on the job, you know, right? You're yeah, finding out we're going to go, and maybe I'm going to get to do the next To Kill a Mockingbird or something. You know, maybe or Rugrats, I'll, or Rugrats. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's yeah, and it, it went there, yeah, but um, but that's that was. I mean, on some level, though, don't you? I mean, you say that with a, a mild bit of a, a disdain, but but I mean, at least animated, at least entertaining children is a, sort of a beautiful thing. You can't really take that away. No, There's no way to get cynical about that. That's true. And, you know, the thing is with kids is um, they're, they have, they're less formulated on yeah. what kind of music they want to hear. Uh -huh. So it's like, and that's what I learned from Pee Wee's place. I could, I could mash together clog dancing music with a, with a punk uh, uh -huh. Pogo song with, uh -huh. with um, Chinese uh, instruments. And, yeah, they probably loved it. And yeah, and the, the kids were always kind of like, wow, bring it on, whatever it is, you know. And and uh, with Rugrats, I did a lot of sampling of, uh -huh. of my voice to make the bass sound or to make different instruments. Oh, cool. I made yeah. different instruments that didn't really exist. And uh, and and then Rugrats did this other thing. They did a feature. Oh, I think we did three features together, but the first feature, I got an 80-piece orchestra, and so I broke through the catch-22 of, well, you've never scored for an orchestra, so you can't score our film with an orchestra. So I, I did all these smaller films, like Wes Anderson things, and... and uh, You were with him at the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. and so, so I'd, I'd do all these things that you could have a small group, but... Uh, Rugrats was the first movie I got to use a, a big full orchestra on, and that was kind of cool. That's exciting. That was. That was, that was pretty interesting to, to get to write for that. And then to hear the music like that, because you're always, for television, you're always writing where there's no budget, so you're using a synthesizer to make a, an orchest orchestral yeah. sound, yeah. and um, it's a big difference. With Wes Anderson, now... 
when you score a film, like when you are you the are you the music director or do you just do the original music on his movies? Do you choose the songs as well and that kind of stuff? Wes ch- chooses the songs, okay, and he he's very hands on everything. Um, the fact that he can't play every single instrument, uh, he renames all my cues. <laughs> every single piece of music I yeah. write, he renames it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But but um, but um. He's the guy that, like, I remember Tannenbaum's, I walked through the house with him, and we're upstairs, they're going to film that day, and he's looking at the ceiling, and something's bothering him, and it's in the room where where the kids uh, slept, in the bedroom for yeah. the kids, and he goes up, and he paints over the ceiling, and he paints the painting, because he said, repainted where the kids had done graffiti on the wall, because he said, yeah, that artwork wasn't that didn't look like what they would really draw on the walls like you know right he, right every little thing oh, every detail uh, he he was aware of it and he he felt that stuff was all important i really loved him for that oh and no I, he's meticulous he's with very, the uh, framing you know what i mean like everything in every shot is you know on the color level on a placement yeah. level everything has to be there so working with him, there's that meticulousness with the music too, huh? Yeah, and he and we got along really well. He he liked being able to um, hang out at the studio while I was writing, and uh, and uh, yeah. And then you and you've had uh, you know you've done like four or five of his movies, and mm-hmm. you've like you've had this huge career in soundtracks, and it's like pretty amazing. Sounds like you like the busyness. I, I do. I do. And this, the book of your exhibition, I didn't see the whole show, but I feel like I saw one of the, the sound sculptures. It Was that in a group oh, show? Yeah, yeah. It's been filmed a number of times, and it's been on tour in about six museums or so. Right yeah, now. I, I know. I saw it somewhere. It was pretty fascinating. Yeah. So there's, you do, There's a number of those now. I, I, I like building instruments. I found, and that actually is, uh, it was a Wes Anderson movie that, that made that happen. He was... He sent me footage for Moonrise Kingdom, uh-huh. and um, it w- didn't have any sound on it, and it was just footage of kids running through a, a woods, and there were birds flying, and wind was blowing the trees, and it. But there was because they were just shooting at them above; they they weren't recording anything, so it was silent. But it, you saw this movement in the shot, and so I collect eccentric uh, es- um, music instruments and sound makers, and I have about. 150 bird calls that I right. collected through the years. And so I started playing some along with the picture. And then I lost interest in the movie and I just wanted to write music for bird calls. And I started, because I, I, I was like, wow, you could program, you know, if you record it onto tape. I'd never done that before other than just one track as a sound effect for something. But I realized, you know, they have their own notes and you you have this kind of, depending on which ones you use, you have certain notes that you can repeat and it it becomes uh uh you know like percussive and uh-huh. it becomes melodic at the same time and i was fascinated with it but it was hard writing music for like 50 of them right you know because what do you do get 50 people in the room that's expensive you know? <laughs> yeah and yeah yeah say okay here's what the how you read the music and then you have them play it so i found this guy that repaired um calliopes for um uh, amusement parks and I asked him if like the thing that they blow the air through for the calliope because I, I have a calliope yeah. and I said could you hook those air hoses up to bird calls and he goes why I'd be no problem at all and we started <laughs> he started doing some and as we did them we were well some of them some of the bird calls are just like leather pouches with a little thing so you 
tap it with yeah. your hand. So it'll go beep, 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 or, or you, there's rubber tubes that yeah. there's like, that look like rubber shotgun shells that you, they have these little brass pieces at the end that when you shake it, it sounds like a flock of quail. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, and and I said, well, these ones you need, they need to shake, or these ones you need to tap, and he'd go, oh, I could do that. That's just a little mechanism. And we started designing mechanisms, and so we made this machine that, that plays about uh, 50-some bird calls, and and I started writing music for it, and I could write it on a keyboard then because I, I was using MIDI to control them, but they were all played acoustically they're not just, right they're not just sampled and yeah. played and so it made me think about music in a different way to write music for these things it was became so liberating because i'd spent so many years so many decades writing music that to have something where the where the instrument doesn't have the same uh parameters is, sure. is all the instruments of an orchestra or of a synthesizer or of any of, instrument of any instrument it's yeah. like it, it was a new it was a new terrain. That's and, exciting. And, and it was, yeah, it was, it was like finding a new kind of paint to work yeah, with yeah, that yeah. you never used before. Did you use it in the movie? Uh, well, there is a movie that's that they're asking if they can be the first movie to use. Oh, you didn't it, use so. it for Wes's movie? That was just the inspiration for yeah, it? Yeah, it was just, it just made me, it, <laughs> it actually, uh, I did uh, play stuff in his film. I don't think I used a bird call in it, but I, I played some of the stuff at the camp with, uh -huh. uh, but. um. In the photography like, I, I love the postcards. I love the drawings. I love these, uh, I don't know what you call them. I guess you'd call them uh, new instruments. That, yeah, the yeah. Bird orchestrions. Call, orchestrions. And you do one with uh, with flutes or whistles, or, or uh, right? They're, they're all organ pipes. Yeah. And, uh, but one the, with doorbells, actually. There's oh, one really? with tuned doorbells, and they so it sounds really great. It's, I bet. All different kinds. Yeah. And But the, the photography was sort of fascinating to me, because I just, like, I, I, I guess the question is, you know the the device of the mutant photography is using you know the same side twice. I guess is mm -hmm. what you, was that. Do you find was that relatable to you know your condition? Did you find that you were inspired at all by the, your vision? You or know, um, I be, I became interested in symmetry. Yeah, probably the same time I got glasses mm -hmm. because, um, like right now, part of how I correct my I, my I have myopia, extreme myopia, but I can read, you know, like the small line above your name on that poster back there. Yeah. But, but in tra the trade-off is is that I'm looking into a, a doorknob basically. I right. Have, I, I have a fisheye right. lens, and yeah, and uh, I'm used to ignoring the fact that when I go like this, I'm bending the corners of the walls on both sides, and 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 this part of my vision, they're bending about a foot and a half down. Yeah. When I go between this and this yeah and i'm just used to looking in a uh a, a fish doorknob eye. yeah yeah <laughs> kind of right fish right. eye lens uh my whole life and and some somehow symmetry kind of fit into that you know it's like both musically um the idea of of um of of uh, scales that go both ways and at the same time i was doing those images i was working on uh it was Life Aquatic, and and uh, it's another Wes Anderson thing. Yeah. So, uh, he uh, on the movie before that it was uh, um, Royal Tannenbaums. Yeah. And there was a scene that he real that he liked the music for, where where uh, um, so Gene and Angelica are walking through Central Park, and it's kind of a it's a scene where he's being the least 
kind of an a-hole yeah he's been in the whole film he's kind of like a, a real shit yeah you know sure. self yeah self-promoting and taking advantage of everybody but he's being really nice to her because he's trying to get on her good side again yeah, yeah. and he's like being complimentary and uh -huh. sweet and she's enjoying it even though she has a new boyfriend she's still like she's enjoying that he's not being a jerk yeah and um so there was a piece of music that was written for that and wes kept referring to that as he said you know when in in this movie now a life aquatic when um when um bill murray uh, bill murray is talking about his boat i i you know he's so proud of his boat and we're going to a cutaway and and i went to italy to rome to see this this soundstage he was working at at Cinecitta, i think it's called uh -huh. and uh, there was a giant big life-size boat cut in half yeah and and that it was like um there were all these different rooms and people are doing things in it and he did this it was a, a camera sweep through the whole thing and he says i want to have music that sounds like that music with uh where, where they're walking in the park i want to have something like that for the boat and so i wrote like three or four pieces for him and he's like no not that and then i i wrote him another one and he goes mm, not that and and I'd been working on these um, uh, these um, symmetrical um, mutations, and so I just took the sheet music for um, the scene that he liked yeah. in Central Park, and I played it backwards. I just held it up to a mirror and I played it backwards, and then I recorded it for him. And so I I literally just played like if you put him, you know, like like took one and put it in a mirror and, and yeah. And did this. It's like it was the same on both sides going the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And I play it for him. And he goes, that's it. Oh, wow. It was awesome. He loved it. And what? I didn't even tell him until oh, after I recorded it that yeah. what had happened. And then that, then that has that secret sort of subversive connection to the other film. Yeah. And if you put the two sheets of music together, I don't know if it's in there or not, but yeah. somewhere I, I, have, I put them together. And you can see that it's like, it looks like. Um, it's just a mirror image? Yeah, a mirror image. So. Well, that's fascinating, man, and and I and I love the art, and I love the all the work, and it was a uh, great talking to you, man. The same, sir. You feel good? I do. I like your um, your place out here. It's very. It looks like it's packed with all sorts of information. Yeah, I'm comforted by it. Hey, look, there's a Tim Leary book sitting right here on. Yeah, the shelf. big biography. I got some of the old uh, Ginsburg poetry books from City Lights over there. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you know, it's just a... You're a star. People send stuff to you, right? Sometimes, yeah. That's I don't know if I'm a star, but I'm a guy who talks on a microphone. So, I mean, some people think, like, you know, yeah, the pedals and things. Um, maybe we'll find you a pedal from Earthquaker. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Wow. That, quite a life. Like, a real artist. A real artist. And it's always good to talk to to real artist a true original mark mother's bot and again go to wtfpod.com get on the mailing list for for uh, a, an opportunity for some deals around our our new book waiting for the punch um and you know uh, you, you know try to fight the good fight live life don't get uh, psychically pummeled by a cultural momentum that is malignant and hopefully not terminal boomer lives no guitar. I'm in a hotel room. <laughs>